Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Rambling with Ryu. I'm Bean. And I'm Nancy. And today we have a special guest with us. It's Dr. Dave Collins from the University of Alberta. He's a professor in the Faculty of Kinesiology, Sport, and Recreation. So welcome, Dave. Hey, hello. It's great to be here. All right. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about who you are, your background, and I guess I should tell everybody, too, we're talking about functional electrical stimulation today. So Dave's very passionate about this topic, so that's why we brought him on. Right on. Yeah, well, thanks for the invitation. As the name of the podcast implies rambling, I thought I'd go kind of way back as far as the background goes. So I grew up in southern Ontario, and I didn't come out west until uh, after high school. So I got a job at the Banff Springs Hotel by mail, and I came out to be a ski bum. So I was out working in Banff for a couple of years as a ski bum before I went back to university. And then I went back to Ontario and did an undergrad in kinesiology and wasn't really sure what to do next. So I went back to Banff. And in the meantime, I lined up a master's with a professor I got to know during my undergrad, and that was in neuroscience. So he was looking at how reflexes were involved in controlling movement. So I went back to Guelph and did a two-year master's there. Still wasn't really sure what to do with my life. So as you do, you kind of just carried on doing what I was doing. So I did line up a PhD out in Edmonton. So that's kind of what brought me to Edmonton. But in the meantime, between my master's and my PhD, I did some world traveling. So my brother and I went to Australia and a few other places for a six-month walkabout, which was part of my education, I like to think. Then I came out to Alberta and did a PhD and all of my training really up till now was really in basic understanding of how the nervous system controls movement. Then after a PhD, still really wasn't sure what I was going to do, to be honest, and wasn't planning on being a prof, certainly wasn't thinking of running a research program or anything like that. Mm And then got a postdoctoral fellowship in Australia. And at that time, we were doing some experiments stimulating muscles. Again, the experiments were just basically trying to understand how the nervous system controls movement. But one thing we noticed was that the contractions were not behaving the way that we expected them to. And so a lot of the time during my postdoctoral fellowship was spent trying to figure out this kind of unusual way that it seemed the electrical stimulation was producing the contraction. So yeah, I spent a couple of years in Sydney, Australia, which was really great. Then realized that I needed to do something. <laughs> I couldn't just keep training forever. And really the kind of training path that I had followed, I guess the further and further you get into it, the less and less you're qualified to do other than being an academic. <laughs> so I did start applying for jobs and I was fortunate enough to get a job back at the University of Alberta here. And you know, I've been here, I guess, for 20 years now. And something I learned early on when I became a professor was that you need to obtain grants in order to run your own independent research program. And the big money really is in applied research. So, I mean, there is some money in basic research, which is what I had been doing up until then, which is curiosity-driven research into how the nervous system controls movement. So I had been looking at things like reflexes and how they're involved in controlling movement. But I realized when you have your own lab and you need to pay some bills, which largely involves paying people, to be honest. Mm-hmm, yeah, I would agree with that as a business owner too. Yeah. Yeah, you guys would know all about that. I had to come up with some practical applications. Imagine that, a practical application for my research. And I thought back to the work that I had been doing in Sydney, which was about electrically stimulating muscles. 
And what we had shown is that these reflex pathways, so typically I guess people had been thinking that when you stimulate muscles, and we'll talk about this a bit more later, you're basically directly stimulating the muscle under the electrodes. But what we had shown is that you can also activate the muscle through different pathways. And I'll talk about that more later. But I decided to kind of pursue that as my own independent research way to see if that might be a more effective way to stimulate the muscle for these various applications. And really, I guess I kind of told that rambling story as my work in FES was not a planned pathway. And it really was almost born out of necessity. And in other words, I had noticed this interesting thing and I thought, geez, what application might that have? And I thought, well, you know, people stimulate muscles for people who've had a spinal cord injury to get them exercising and things like that. Maybe something like that. And I guess, you know what, I'm still kind of chasing down and asking that same question about 20 years later. And I think that just speaks to how in-depth and detailed research really can go and how much we don't know. Yeah, as I was thinking about talking to you guys today, it does speak to that, but it speaks as well to how slow it is. You know, it is slow because a lot of these ideas that I'm still trying to get out there and to get people listening to are 20 years old, at least. I mean, it probably says something about me and my ability to get those ideas out there. But I think it also says a lot about uptake. And I've discovered since being in this position, and two of you will know this as well, is that it takes more than just an idea to make something happen. <laughs> Look at what the two of you have done with building that fantastic place. But yeah, it, it takes a lot to make something happen. And it's, it's a lot more than just an idea. <laughs> yeah, oh, for sure. I mean, even if we think back to activity-based training, and it's been around since the 90s, and still oh, you go. You know, things are not where they should be. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, cool. Well, let's dive right into it then about what is functional electrical stimulation. Yeah, so functional electrical stimulation, it goes by various names. When I publish my work, I call it neuromuscular electrical stimulation. I mean, it's really all the same thing. Some people might call it therapeutic electrical stimulation, and it really the different names a little bit or about different uses, but it's all talking about using electrical stimulation to produce contractions of human muscle. The term functional electrical stimulation, I guess, implies that it's to do a functional task. So in that way, the functional electrical stimulation might differentiate itself a little bit from some other ones where you might just put on the electrical stimulation to get a contraction to build up muscle tone, for example. I, I'm not sure I would call that functional, but really it's semantics. It's, it's using electrical stimulation to produce a muscle contraction. Mm -hmm. Sounds good. And I guess what kind of devices are a part of functional electrical stimulation and like what, what what's the most basic i guess fes unit yeah you know you can build well i was gonna say you could build one pretty easy i certainly could not build a stimulator quite easily but i know people who can so they're quite simple devices really i mean they're commercially available and all you really need some of them run off batteries some of them plug into the wall and they vary from simply down to like a one channel stimulator where you can stimulate a single muscle up to like multiple 16 channel stimulators. Mm -hmm. Basically what you do is you have a couple of electrodes which are like sticky gel coat pads that range in size maybe from two or three centimeter little discs to maybe six centimeter by four centimeter big pads that you might put over the, the larger muscles. Uh, mm -hmm. And you can deliver little pulses of electrical stimulation through those pads and cause the muscles that are underneath there to contract. 
Ah, very cool. Now let's dive into kind of the nitty gritty of how does it all work and how can electricity stimulate a muscle? Yeah, exactly. Well, it kind of hijacks the way that normal voluntary contractions are produced. So when we normally produce a voluntary contraction, like literally a small little electrical signal starts up in a certain part of your brain and travels down a nerve. So it's basically traveled down a cable uh, down to your spinal cord and it travels to another neuron down there, which is called a motor neuron. So those are the ones that are really important for FES. So motor neurons sit in your spinal cord and travel their projections out to the muscles. So the motor neurons are the ones that enable us to move around. But all these neurons in the muscles use tiny little electrical signals to communicate. And those little electrical signals are called action potentials. So if somebody has a spinal cord injury, for example, those little electrical signals can't bypass the injury in the spinal cord. However, those motor neurons that are sitting in the spinal cord below the level of the lesion are still projecting out to the muscle and they're still fine. So they can still conduct electrical signals and the muscles can still conduct electrical signals and contract. So basically what FES does is it bypasses for a spinal cord injury, for example, it bypasses the injury in the spinal cord and it applies the electrical stimulation directly to those motor neurons as they send their signals out to the muscle. So by putting those pads over the muscle, like on your legs, you're delivering those little pulses of electrical stimulation to those nerve fibers underneath there, and you're causing the muscles to contract. So basically, with your finger on the dial of the stimulator, you can dial up the stimulator and cause a bigger muscle contraction and cause somebody's leg to move. I mean, it's almost, to a certain extent, it's like controlling arms and legs as you would a puppet, because you can turn it up and down and get someone moving around beyond their control. Mm-hmm. Okay, and for the science nerds out there, yeah, can we dive a little bit into, is the rec- muscle recruitment, so there's different muscle fiber types, is the muscle yeah. recruitment the same for FES as it would be a voluntary contraction, or does it change? Yeah, thanks for asking that one. Because that's actually what I've been building my career on for the last 20 years. That was my little idea that I had back there when I started my career was that maybe because my thought was we're generating these contractions through these reflex pathways that go through the spinal cord rather than directly, which is the more typical way electrical stimulation generates contractions, maybe that would be advantageous for these FES applications. And little did I really know at the time that, in fact, it is. And since then, I've published a few things showing that, in fact, it is. And the reason for that is, as you mentioned, there are different kinds of muscle fibers. So there's a range of types of muscle fibers. At one extreme are the muscle fiber types that generate small amounts of force, but can do it for long, long, long periods of time. So these are the kinds of muscle fibers that we have in muscles that we use for standing or breathing, thankfully. anything that we need to do for long periods of time, but doesn't require large amounts of forces. So those are the fatigue-resistant muscle fibers. When we do a voluntary contraction, those ones are recruited first, because as I said, we need to breathe, we need to stand, and all those kinds of things that don't require large amounts of force, but we have to do for long periods of time. As you do bigger and bigger and bigger contractions, you start progressively recruiting muscle fibers that can generate more force, but fatigue more quickly. And eventually, once you're recruiting all of the muscle fibers, the very last ones you recruit generate large amounts of force, but can only do it for very short periods of time. Uh, So when you do a a natural voluntary contraction, you first of all recruit those fatigue-resistant ones, 
And then you kind of go through a continuum of types of muscle fibers until you get those ones that fatigue most rapidly. That's a normal voluntary contraction. And it kind of makes sense for, you know, the way voluntary movements are performed. Because if you want to do a maximal contraction, you need lots of force, but you don't need it for a long period of time. And that's what those super big muscle fibers are for. But when you do electrical stimulation, it doesn't recruit them in that natural order. It recruits them randomly. At least when you do electrical stimulation the traditional way, which is basically stimulating the motor neurons that go to the muscle fibers. But what I showed is that when you can generate these contractions through these reflex pathways, so it's kind of like the reflex when you tap that tendon at your knee and you get that little jerk of the muscle, basically what you can think of it is if you could tap that tendon at the knee 40 times a second, <laughs> you would get 40 twitches a second. And what that would actually be would be a smooth contraction that's being generated through that pathway through your spinal cord. That's really what I'm trying to do with the electrical stimulation. And when you do it that way, you recruit those muscle fibers in the same order as you do a voluntary contraction. And you get those ones that are most fatigue resistant first. And so one of the problems when you use FES is that the contractions fatigue very quickly. So mm-hmm. my research has shown that if you can generate contractions through these reflex pathways, you can get less fatigue. And I mean, if you're using it to get someone, for example, riding a bike, then you can imagine that theoretically they're going to get more benefits out of that exercise session than they would if they were fatiguing more rapidly. Very cool stuff. And we're going to dive more, I think, in depth into that uh, towards the end of the episode. So from here, you've kind of touched on it, I guess, a little bit is, are there different kinds of FES? Yeah, so there's a couple of ways to look at that. You could talk about different kinds of FES in terms of how it's applied, which is more technical, I guess, which I'll just touch on. And then you could also talk about different kinds of FES in terms of what it's used for. And I'll talk a little bit about that too. So there's surface FES, which is the most common way it's really used. It's the most practical. And that's what I've been talking about. And that's what I will be talking about today. And that's just putting those electrodes on the skin. And there's a couple of ways you could do that. You could put it over a muscle belly. So if you think about your quadriceps muscles, which are those big muscles on the front of the top of your leg, which extend your knee. You could put big electrodes that are like six or eight centimeters long over those muscles and cause them to contract. Or there's also other places in your legs and in your arms where a nerve trunk runs close to the surface of the skin and you could put the electrode right over the nerve. So I guess in thinking about it, it's kind of a technicality, but you could put the electrodes over the muscle belly or over the nerve. There's also implanted systems. I think maybe they were really, people were researching them a little bit more quite a number of years ago. I don't think that they are all that practical and they're not really be in, in use so much. So most of the FES these days is surface stimulation. But in terms of different kinds, in terms of what it can be used for, I think the most common application for sure for FES is exercise. So it's for the benefits to the muscle and benefits to the cardiovascular system, among other things. And the most common form of that is FES cycling. So sitting on a stationary bike. I mean, there's a few different kinds. I see that you have one now at Ryu. I'm not sure how you how long you've had that, but that's awesome. So there's a few different kinds of FES cycling bikes. There's also FES rowing, which is a really good workout because you'd use the whole body. They're also developing FES rowing for on the water, which I don't believe is commercially available, but cool. that sounds exciting. So those are FES exercise uh, devices, which I think are the most common. There's also FES devices for activities of daily living, like to assist walking. Like there's whole systems to help with walking, which are not that practical and are more experimental, I would say. 
There is a FES device to prevent foot drop. So lots of people experience foot drop where there's an inability to flex the foot as the foot goes through swing when we're walking. So the toes tend to drag on the floor. And so there's a few different types of stimulators that will stimulate those muscles on the front of the bottom of the leg to flex that foot as it goes through walking. I would say that's probably the most commonly used kind of FES device to assist with walking. Then there's also FES that's for reaching and grasping. Again, I would say primarily experimental. I think some people are probably using the ones for grasping in their activities of daily living, but I'm not sure how much. And then FES to complement activity-based rehab that you may know a little bit about, I think is probably also primarily experimental, but I think it has a lot of promise. Yeah, I mean, I know within Ryu, we definitely use it as an adjunct to the training that we do. Yeah, nice. All right. And then you've touched a little bit on the benefits of FES. Do you want to just go into the ones that have been studied and proven and that sort of thing? So I'm going to preface this a little bit with a question that I think might come up at some point, but I'll ask it to myself. And that is, why is there not a bigger uptake of FES? I mean, I think anecdotally, there's a lot of evidence. I'll talk mainly about FES cycling. There's a lot of evidence for the benefits for it anecdotally. But in order for it to really get taken up, the level of evidence in the literature is not strong enough for the medical community to really, I guess, convince themselves, convince their boards and the various people they have to convince that this is something worth pursuing. And I mean, I have to, I guess, look at myself in the mirror. I mean, as an FES researcher, to be saying that really the level or the quality of research in this area is not sufficient to get people on board. Yeah, it is kind of a looking in the mirror thing for me. But what got me down this little bit of a wormhole is you said the evidence for the, the benefits for it. And so the evidence out there right now that we can say FES helps is really around the muscle. So muscle strength and muscle bulk. And I believe some of the cardiovascular measures. But Pretty much everything else, because the studies are limited typically by number of people, mm -hmm. we just don't have the numbers that we need in order to get the, the level of evidence. So things like bone mineral density, for example, mm -hmm. and oxygen consumption, and I believe spasticity, although anecdotally there's evidence. So all of these things that I'm mentioning, bone mineral density, oxygen consumption, cardiovascular risk factors, spasticity, range of motion psychosocial factors such as quality of life, all of these things have been anecdotally, well, and even in the literature, but in order to make a certain level of evidence that's going to convince people to change best practices, I don't think we're at a point yet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what I can say that there's a sufficient level of evidence to say that FES cycling is going to strengthen muscle and make muscles bigger, and there's not sufficient evidence really for most of the other outcomes. Okay. Which is disappointing. Disappointing, I'd say, yeah. Definitely. All right. So that being said, are there any side effects or risks associated with FES cycling? We'll just stick to FES cycling since it's been the most researched and studied. Yeah. Well, really for any FES, I mean, there's always possibilities of minor irritations from the electrodes, like skin irritations and stuff like that. You have to be super careful with rubbing and like friction irritations, those kinds of things. If somebody is prone to developing autonomic dysreflexia, so if they have a, a spinal cord injury above T6, the higher it gets, the more likely. So they would need to be looked at for how likely they are to develop autonomic dysreflexia, because that could be quite dangerous. There is a possibility of developing pressure sores if there is a friction area or something like that. So you have to be really careful for those kinds of things. 
you know, I guess there's always a chance because you're hooked up to electric equipment for equipment failure. I really haven't heard much of that. Discomfort is certainly something that prevents some people from participating. So some people, for sure, it's just too mm-hmm. uncomfortable for them to participate. Mm-hmm. Is it discomfort in the movement or is it discomfort in the sensation? I think it's the sensation of the electrical stimulation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think, unfortunately, for some people, I mean, I'll be honest, I've been doing this for 20 years. I still get in the chair to do an experiment. And let's say there's a couple of rookie <laughs> first year students on the other side of the equipment. I'm a little anxious about, you know, I'm like, hey, is that dial turned down there? Hey, is that uh, power turned off over there? So, I mean, the first time that you're hooked up to these things, anybody is going to feel a little bit anxious. And I think sometimes people don't give it a good enough shot. You know, I think perhaps the therapist or the person who's with them maybe starts a little too hard, you know, probably the first day for someone who's a little anxious, just turn it on. Just see, hey, you see that little red light? It's on. And then over time, dial it up. Hey, do you feel that? Oh, okay. You feel that now. And, you know, just go really nice and slow. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. It's like with all our staff too, we're like, try it on yourself first. So you know what it feels like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny because most of our experiments, or at least a lot of them we do on people with no injuries to kind of test our ideas. Mm-hmm. And I get a range of feedback from people who say, I'm out of here. And, you know, we've hardly even turned it up. They're like, no way. To people who are, yeah, you turn it up as much as you want and they call it like a gentle massage or sometimes they giggle. (laughs) It's just such a range. All right. So we've kind of started touching on this a little bit, but what can somebody expect when starting FES? So you mentioned that just turning it on, but what's that kind of sensation like? And you're somebody who's able-bodied just so we can cater it to our whole audience. Yeah, for sure. I would say before the thing even gets turned on, you're going to feel a little anxious. You know, unless you use, some people have had like TENS type stimulation for pain, or some people have had this kind of stimulation, like Dr. Ho, it's the same type of thing. But for people who have not had any type of stimulation, I mean, they're just going to feel anxious. And then some people don't like seeing their muscles move without them being in control of that. So you got to be ready for that. Otherwise, the stimulation feels like a pins and needles sensation at the start. Sometimes it's a little bit more sharp when it's low and then as you turn it up and the contraction gets a little stronger that kind of sharpness goes away a little bit i think some people don't get past that (laughs) but no doubt depending on the muscle and the person it can be quite uncomfortable and Mm -hmm. i know that some people who use it therapeutically kind of work through that discomfort in order to get the benefits which you know is unfortunate and if there was a you know a more comfortable way to deliver it that'd be great Mm-hmm. I know with kids, we talk about, in kids' terms, we say, oh, the, here comes the tickle, or here it's going to be itchy, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I like that. But yeah, so you've turned it on, and the electrodes are placed on your legs, and then it's going to start. So let's just talk about FES cycling. Yeah. It's been started, and what are you to expect from their kind of duration and that kind of thing? Yeah, so I think what would happen first on the bike would be the person who's helping you out would turn it up. So you'd probably have electrodes on the front and back of the top part of your legs at least. And so stimulating those muscles would flex and extend the knee. Probably initially the person helping you out would first of all turn it up until there's a little bit of contraction and get you used to that. And then would turn it up enough that it's it's sufficient to turn those pedals around. And then they're going to get the bike going, depending on the bike. Some of them can just move passively around a range of motion to start with. 
And then it, how fast the bike goes is very flexible in terms of the person. So typically with FES cycling, it's much, much slower than might typically be if it's not an FES assisted cycling. So, I mean, you might expect that the stimulation will be on one muscle for about a second to extend your leg and another muscle for a second or a little bit less to flex their leg. And then you go around like that. Mm-hmm, for sure. So when you're doing the FES, do your muscles work all the time? Or is there a point at which the FES will turn off? Yeah, no, just like normal cycling. So in order to extend your legs, the quadriceps, which are the muscles at the top of your legs, are going to be turned on for probably less than a second. And that's going to extend your knee and push your legs out. And then those ones are going to turn off. And the muscles that bend your knees are going to turn on and they'll come on again for probably less than a second. So it's this kind of on off on off motion it's kind of like what happens when we walk and it's like what happens when we wiggle our elbows back and forth so it's this kind of agonist antagonist muscle contraction thing Mm -hmm. so yeah it's alternating between kind of the front and the back of the legs yeah that's right all right and then in your research and studies have you come across an optimal dosage to see any sort of results in that muscle bulk or strength Yeah, you know, so typically they recommend three times a week, I think for at least half an hour, the cycling. Now, that's all fun and dandy, but a problem with the FDS cycling has been within those sessions. How do you figure out the dosing, if you want to call it that, or the load? Mm -hmm. And how do you progress? And I think that's a real problem in this area. I remember when I first started in this area, and I would go to a place at the University of Alberta called the Stedward Center. And there'd be people sitting on these FES bikes and some of them would be asleep. And one thing about those bikes is when the muscles fatigue, the bikes kind of kick in and passively move the legs around. So, I mean, I think a problem at that time was a lack of proper progressing people through as their muscles build up that you add a bigger load or you get them going a little bit longer. And to be honest, it's an area of research, I would say. And I think it's partly because there's such a variability in people who are using the FES cycling that, you know, you almost have to tailor it for each individual and to come up with these kind of prescriptive ways to even to start someone, (laughs) but then to progress them through. It's really hard to make these broad generalizations. I think it's important, but I'm not sure how to go about that. I mean, it would make sense because every injury is so different and so unique, right? That it would make so individualized. And like any other workout program, like even as able-bodied, we have to change what we're doing to make more progress. Yeah, absolutely. So we've talked a lot about FES cycling. You did mention a little bit about FES rowing. I don't know if that's been studied as much or is out in the community as much, though. It's not. It was at the Stedward Center for a little while. So a problem with the FES rowing is that up until now or until recently or coming up very soon, it's required someone to have a stationary rowing machine and then adapt it with the FES gear. And I mean, the most popular stationary rowing machine is like $1,500. It's just cost prohibitive. And I know that there is a group in England who are looking, well, they have plans for a FES rowing thing that you can build yourself from parts that you can go and get from the corner hardware store. And they're also providing open source, which means you can go online and download the plans Mm -hmm. for the stimulator. So the idea would be you download the plans for a stimulator and you go find someone who could build it for you. Oh, So as you said, it's presently not as common as the cycling. 
And I think that's largely been due to cost. Mm-hmm. And hopefully it's going to be becoming more popular because I do think it provides a better workout than the cycling. Just like I said, because it is arms and legs. Mm-hmm. We've been talking about the extremities, so arms and legs. Is there any type of FES for like the trunk and the core? Yeah, you know, I don't know a whole lot about that. Yes, definitely there is FES to strengthen the core muscles because strengthening those muscles for posture and sitting are very important. I know that there's been some work done for standing and balance. There's also been some work done for swallowing and coughing as well. Cool. Yeah, so that's also stimulating those muscles of the core. At this point, though, I would assume that's more of that research-based kind of... Yeah, definitely. All right, we're coming down to the last couple of questions. So who will it work for and who won't it work for? How do you know that FES is going to be a benefit for you? Yeah, so the technical answer is that it's going to work for people who have intact lower motor neurons. So those are those motor neurons that I talked about that have their cell bodies in the spinal cord and send their projections out to the muscle fibers. So if you have those intact, FES is going to work for you. In other words, we're going to be able to stimulate those and generate a contraction. The way that you would know if those are working would be if you have reflexes. So if you get spastic uh, twitches of your muscles or if you have reflex contractions of your muscles, that means that those are intact. Otherwise, yeah, I think you'd have to kind of come in and see if the stimulation works. There will be people who either have heightened sensitivity or or perhaps normal sensitivity, but they just don't like it. So there is a segment of the population who just finds it too uncomfortable and can't use it. Mm -hmm. It actually is possible to electrically stimulate muscle fibers directly. So if the muscle fibers are denervated and those motor neurons are dead. So for example, for someone who has something like amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or Lou Gehrig's disease, You can stimulate the muscle fibers directly, but it requires about 10 times more current. And it's really not practical for the kinds of things that we're talking about. So pretty much anyone with that brain or spinal cord injury will likely qualify because that tends to be that upper motor neuron injury. Whereas if you have that peripheral nerve damage, unfortunately, likely won't work for that. That's right. And also, if it is a spinal injury, if it's really high... And they get really bad autonomic dysreflexia, then probably not a candidate. Yeah, it just becomes unsafe at that point. It does, yeah. Although, you know, I do know people who have autonomic dysreflexia who do it. I mean, they know all the signals and they they just keep an eye on it. They don't trigger dangerous bouts of it. And they just keep an eye on it. And they feel that, you know, for them, the benefits are worth it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think a lot of people know the signs and know themselves well enough to not trigger something bad. Mm-hmm. All right. Why don't you talk to us about your current research project and what's going on in your lab right now? Yeah. Well, as we are talking in the days of COVID, <laughs> yeah, not a lot going on in the lab right now, to be quite honest. I do have a few little projects. My FES research is kind of on hold for the moment. I do have some ideas and some FES projects that I want to pursue, and it is related to the FES cycling. So we've been talking a little bit about that. One of the problems with the FES really is that the contractions fatigue quite quickly. And one of the reasons that those contractions fatigue quickly is that the way that the electrical stimulation produces the contractions is not normal. And so as you talked about at the beginning, one of the ways that it's not normal is the the order in which those muscle fibers are recruited. So 
we had said that during normal voluntary contractions, the most fatigue resistant ones get recruited first. So if we could recruit those ones first for cycling, that would be great. But the electrical stimulation doesn't do it that way. It recruits them more randomly. So one way that the stimulation is abnormal is the order in which the muscle fibers are recruited. Another way that it's not normal is that in order to get big enough contractions that are smooth, you have to stimulate the muscle at much higher frequencies than is normal or happens during natural contractions. So as I mentioned earlier, I talked about tapping that tendon 40 times a second. Well, that's because in order to get a big smooth contraction, you typically electrically stimulate that muscle with little pulses that are going 40 times a second. So really, when you do an FES, what you're doing is 40 twitches in a second. And when you do that, you get this big smooth contraction. So the individual muscle fibers are each sending that little impulse 40 times a second, where during natural contractions of about the same size, they'd probably be going, yeah, you know, 10 or 15, maybe 20 times a second. So those muscle fibers are working twice as hard or more to do the same contraction when you electrically stimulate it than when you do it normally. So another thing I've been trying to do is one is to recruit those muscle fibers in their natural order. Another is recruit the muscle fibers at their natural frequency. Mm -hmm. So trying to slow them down, but still get big contractions. And this isn't my idea, but the way that we're doing it is instead of stimulating the muscle through two big electrodes, so if we think about stimulating uh, the quads, which are those big muscles on the front of your leg, through two electrodes, so two big patches, we put four or six big patches on there. So now what we're able to do is stimulate a bigger area of the muscle, and we rotate the stimulus pulses around. So let's think about having four electrodes on there. So now if we stimulate the whole muscle, 40 times a second, but we're rotating pulses, each individual electrode is only going 10 times a second because we go from electrode number one to electrode two to electrode three to electrode four. And even though the whole thing is going 40 times a second, each individual electrode is only going 10 times a second. And ideally, each individual electrode is activating a different part of the muscle. So the muscle fibers are now only going 10 times a second. And so there's lots of work showing that if you stimulate that way, you can get people exercising for much longer. So uh, to be honest, I think this is the way of the future for FES is that rather than these big patches, I think what's going to be happening is people are going to have like Lululemon type shirts and pants that have electrodes embedded in them, kind of maybe somewhat customized for each person. So the first time you put on this clothing, You know, you have to put the electrodes in a certain place to put it over your muscles. Mm -hmm. But then you kind of, I don't know, Velcro them in or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then you're stimulating your muscles and going that way. So that's kind of having multiple electrodes over the different muscle groups. That's kind of what I see as the future, really. Very cool. So there'd be smaller electrodes, basically. And the current is going between two specific electrodes. That's right. And you know, it's interesting that you say smaller electrodes because... When I initially started down this path, I thought, well, because we did this, we did four electrodes are better than two. So as soon as I saw that, I thought I was thinking 12, I was thinking 16, (laughs) you know, so we did those experiments and we went up to, I think, 10. But the problem is, especially for someone like myself, who's a, a small person, once you start getting up around that number of electrodes, the electrodes themselves have to be quite small. 
Yeah. The advantage of the big electrodes is when you deliver the current through a large electrode, what's called current density is quite low. And so the bottom line is it doesn't really hurt. Mm-hmm. When you start delivering those kinds of currents through smaller electrodes, the current density gets higher and higher and it just hurts more. Mm-hmm. So even though once we use the bigger electrode set, it might have worked better. Well, we actually didn't get the data because it just hurts. People were like, no, I'm not, I'm not doing mm-hmm. that. Yeah. There was a trade-off between number of electrodes and size, I think, that was kind of a practical limitation. And we think four electrodes over the quads is probably optimal. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Has there been any research into bypassing or somehow not stimulating the sensory system to activate the muscle? Ah, uh, yeah, that's a hard one. I mean, there's been a lot of work. So when you deliver the stim, you're delivering, as I've mentioned, a whole bunch of single stimulus pulses. Mm-hmm. And each one of those stimulus pulses has a characteristic shape. So people have played a lot with the shapes of those waveforms to try mm-hmm. to make them more comfortable. I guess in order to try to bypass that sensory side, mm-hmm. I haven't come up with any magic bullets at the moment. I would say that is uh, definitely one of the barriers at the moment is, is that you can't just stimulate the motor side without getting the sensory side at the same time. I mean, I think it's cool that people have even tried to research the waveforms and stuff like that, because I didn't know that they had started with that either. Yeah, and frequencies and all kinds of things, yeah. And as well, stimulating over the muscle belly or over the nerve trunk. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, let's face it, we're, we're electrocuting people. <laughs> it hurts. <laughs> that being said, with the electrical current and stuff, is there any restrictions to anybody with, like, heart conditions or, you know, other implanted devices? That is a good question. I don't think so. I mean, I think if you're stimulating uh, around the trunk or chest muscles, you'd have to be concerned about pacemakers and things. Mm-hmm. We, for our FES cycling type of work, have never had that as a contraindication or had that as something that we'd need to be worried about. No. Mm-hmm. So extremities are typically a fairly safe go-to. Yeah. All right. One last question. What direction do you hope to see FES go in the future? I know you've touched on it a little bit, but what's the dream? Yeah. What's the the, the perfect research project for you. Yeah, you know what? I'd like us to advance the technology. Well, optimize it, but I write that in my grants. I'm optimizing this, but really I'm just trying to make it better. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to figure out the best way to deliver it. That's practical. And then I would like there to be some large scale studies that are international between large groups in various places that produce the level of evidence that's required or not. You know what, if if they do these big studies and it says, hey, you know what, all you guys, guys and gals who are out there have been doing FES research, you know what? Yeah, maybe not. Whatever the answer is, which I, I don't think it'll be that, but provide the level of evidence on what it works for and what it doesn't, because I imagine there are going to be some things that, you know what, it doesn't really work for this. It does work for that. Let's figure out what it works for. Let's figure out how to maximize it for that. And let's get it to the people who need it in a cost-effective way. I think that would be the goal. Well, thank you for all the good information. I think that kind of brings us to the end. Bean, do you have anything you'd want to ask or add? Yeah, I just want to say thank you so much for all this valuable information. You know, it's important that this research is being done. And thank you for being one of the researchers who are doing it. Absolutely my pleasure. I love it. Thanks. Thanks again to Dave Collins from the U of A for providing such great insight into functional electrical stimulation. 
As always, please give us a five-star review and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen to your podcast so that it helps us increase our reach. We'll be back here in another two weeks with another episode for you. So stay tuned.